when Stan's brother comes to town for a visit, he's quick to get Blanche's attention. Well, once she learns he's a doctor, at least. When the two find they have nothing in common, the date comes to an end for Ted and Blanche, but it's just getting started for Ted and his ex-sister-in-law, Dorothy. Will Blanche ever forgive Dorothy for stealing her date? Will Dorothy really get engaged to another Zbornak? Will Rose ever fall asleep? All of that and more in today's episode, Brotherly Love. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go, I hope you know you'll always be my sisters. It's a sunny afternoon on Richmond Street, and in the kitchen of the girls' house, we find Dorothy in a navy cross-wrapped blouse that's a bit formal with a cameo. And Sophia, in a multiple hues of blue dress with red cardigan, are both sitting at the table. Dorothy is pouring herself a glass of the house's favorite beverage, orange juice, when a distraught in what looks to be a knee-length cover in colors similar to if you took Pepto-Bismol but it didn't really work and matching pants in the same diarrhea-inspired tone, Blanche comes walking in. Understandably, she's very upset. Shockingly, it isn't because of her clothes. See, she had been at the grocery store and saw the man that she's currently dating squeezing melons. No, not the breast-type melons. Food melons. This was upsetting because the man had claimed to be a lawyer, not a produce waxer. Our produce is actually still waxed today, mostly by machines, but it can be done by hand. While it used to be done to maintain the moisture, the biggest factor in maintaining the waxing today is because it makes the food shiny, and we love shiny things. Blanche just can't wrap her head around the idea that men feel the need to lie about themselves to seem more appealing to women. Sophia can't believe this sentiment is coming from a woman who puts more padding on her chest than famed Cincinnati Reds pitcher Johnny Bench, who famously wore all of his padding when warming up, something his peers did not do. But he played hard. For God's sake, he's Johnny Bench. 87 years old, and my grandmother's uh, just turned 87. And my great grand, my other grandparents uh, had their 65th wedding anniversary the other day. Good heavens! So uh, maybe they'll get part of the book or something. Six, 65th? What, uh, 65 years. Or 85 and 83. How uh, is that something you want to celebrate? 65 years of marriage? Wow! <laughs> I'm working on a year. <laughs> Coming into the kitchen in her all pink pajamas and blue robe, looking like she's about to be the mascot at a gender reveal party, is Rose. She just doesn't have time for breakfast, and she's got to get going. When Dorothy tries to point out that she's forgotten something, like, you know, putting on daytime clothes, Rose remembers, oh, right, a kiss on the forehead for Mommy. The ladies are awfully calm towards their friend, who appears to be having some sort of mental situation. Well, she kind of is. It has been three nights of Rose not sleeping. 
After 24 hours of no sleep, a person can start to experience hallucinations, mood swings, depression, anxiety, memory issues, cognitive issues, and enough physical ones like weight gain and heart issues that if the sleep evades you long enough, it can become a serious problem. Blanche offers a solution. Why doesn't Rose drink some warm milk before she goes and lays down? Which isn't an old wives' tale. Any warm drink, that's caffeine-free of course, can help you sleep by warming and relaxing you and providing you with a full tummy. Milk is even better because it includes tryptophan, the stuff in Turkey that makes you sleepy. That's right, the drink that the milk lobbyists forced us to have at every meal while looking at our favorite singing, dancing, and athletic heroes with gross mustaches on while in the cafeteria is not only one of the highest sources of tryptophan, it also has melatonin. So if you're looking to return to work or class after lunch and you wonder why you're always extra sluggish, then you've got to ask yourself, did you got milk? Rose can't bring herself to consume warm milk. It brings up the memory of her cousin falling into a vat of milk, which then birthed the St. Olaf tradition of milk diving. Rose was a successful non-fat diver, but the whole thing came to a scandalous end when supporters were caught using the residual milk in a diver's shorts to get their Oreos soggy. So that is why she can't drink a glass of milk. Seizing the opportunity to escape the stories of milk and cookie pants, all three girls are desperate to get to be the one to see who is ringing the doorbell. Sophia wins, leaving Blanche and Dorothy to deal with Rose. Besides milk, she also won't take a pill which, in the future, we learn is a plot whoopsie. Pills make her goofy, and that would be so out of character. But, you know, I think I'm the same way. I've been living on NyQuil this last week to sleep, battling a cold that was somehow caught while quarantined. Anyway, I feel like, and Coco, you can vouch for this, I feel like I caught myself talking to myself or, like, trying to talk to you several times, which is not something I normally do. It kind of reminds me of a, a stuffed animal coming to life. Your little, your little noises, little grumbles, <laughs> little growls, slight movements. Sounds like something is coming to life. I've. It felt like it was happening more with NyQuil. I heard a lot of chatter. Okay, that's what I thought. Not many words. Just sometimes you'd wake up and just be and ask me if I was okay. Oh, well, that's fun. It was. <laughs> it was very cute, and and I was. So, spoilers. <laughs> Well, Sophia didn't get that much of a break leaving Rose. She's now stuck dealing with Stan, who has come by to talk to Dorothy. Hitting below the belt, literally, Sophia asks if the news he's there to share is in regards to his ability to get an erection now that he's off his blood pressure medication. Feeling his privacy has been violated, Stan, in an adorable white sweater with thin, colorful lines, looking like a boat captain during Pride Week, is shocked Dorothy spilled so much about their marriage to her mother. Well, it's not like she shared everything with her. She didn't tell Sophia she was pregnant until four days after the wedding. Moving on from the TMI that is being shared, Ted, Stan's brother, reintroduces himself to his former mother-in-law, but by marriage. Which I've always thought that there should be a name for those people. Like, if my brother is married, his wife's parents are his mother-in-law, but then kind of my mother-in-law? You know what I mean? Besides having one of the best names in Hollywood, McLean was best known for his role as bucket hat-wearing Lieutenant Colonel Henry Blake in M.A.S.H., the television series. M.A.S.H. had come along after he had already appeared in That Girl, Love, American Style, and The Doris Day Show. 
his popularity skyrocketed after MASH, earning him his own titular sitcom that only lasted a single season. He would go on to appear on The Love Boat, Hotel, and Different Strokes, but I blame the theme song for the McLean Show's demise. Hello, Mac, you're living on love. It's a way in life. Got a little boy grin. Are you going to be our best friend? You know, Mac, you age like wine with your own sweet touch, and you love it so much you're going to live it over again. Hello, Mac. You've got a heart of gold, so be good to yourself tonight. Hello, Mac. You're on a winning streak, and you're favored to win, and you might. You just might. Hang on, Mac. Hold on, Mac. Expressing pure delight upon seeing her former brother-in-law, Dorothy extends her arms for a hug. As they embrace, Stan's childlike needs to be the center of all attention has him seeking Dorothy's. Fine, she can offer him a hug. No, not from her, but from a landmine. Introducing Ted to the girls, Blanche is pleased, mostly that her new Vanity Fair magazine has come in. Rose is delighted to hear Ted has flown all the way from Minneapolis. Yes, Rose, the one in Minnesota. When Sophia seizes the opportunity to joke that Ted was from the Minneapolis in France, the sleep-deprived Rose can't process any of the wordplay and Minnesota talk, so she excuses herself to go to work. Getting all of the juice out of the lemon that is Donna Rice jokes, when Ted asks Rose what she does for work, Dorothy interrupts, offering that she's a perfect fit for politician Gary Hart's campaign manager. Why? Because you don't have to get out of bed to do it. Gary Hart, of course, being the man at the center of the Donna Rice scandal. A leader in the run for president in 1988, he had to drop out when news of the affair broke. I woke up about four or five this morning with a start. And I said to myself, hell no. no. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that because it's not my style and because I'm a proud man and I'm proud of what I've accomplished. Let's, let's hold down the applause. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it, but let's, let's get through this. It turns out it's nothing special bringing Ted to Miami. He, the successful doctor and community member, is there to visit his hero, king of padded toilet seat sales, his older brother Stan. Offended his novelty product was being spoken about like a joke, Stan reminds Dorothy that those seats put their daughter through college. Sophia appreciates them, too. They've supported her through some hard times. Speaking of, she's off to pay a visit to one now. My grandparents always had padded toilet seats. And my God, I hated them. I hated the sound they made when you sat. I hated the poof of air that came out. I hated the warm plastic, leaving me only thinking about how the fabric felt much more intimate to my Grammy and Grampy's behinds than like a regular toilet seat. Do you have feelings about a padded toilet seat, Coco, or am I the only one with padded passion over here? I've always had a problem with them. I hate them so much. No one's ever articulated it quite so perfectly. They are a nightmare. They feel terrible on your butt. It's like you're, it's like the toilet seat is like kissing your butt. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah. It's a horrible feeling. And it, it, it's, yeah, it's too soft. 
I feel like anything that you're going to be um, pooping into <laughs> just needs to be a hard surface of some sort. Stainless steel, if you must. Please porcelain. Please hard plastic. Please be a white toilet. Oh, my God. And the feeling if you had to spend more than 12 seconds on it and then you rip yourself off of it. Oh, yeah. Like the fruit roll up peel off. Yeah. <laughs> my grandma had one, too. She had one, too. It was terrible. It was like a fruit roll. Yeah. And she had sort of like an old fashioned toilet that was like pretty low to the ground. Well, like an 80s toilet. Oh, OK. Super low to the ground. Huge bowl. Huge. And took about 20 seconds to flush. Oh, was it one of those bowls that were like really oblong? Yeah. Yeah. It was huge. And a, and a padded seat. And you had to just watch all your all your whatnot go down for like an hour and a half. <laughs> Set your watch to it. Lord. Literally. Do. Do. Poops. Bye. Finally hearing something worth pulling her nose out of her magazine for, Blanche couldn't help but overhear that Ted was a doctor, and not just any doctor, but one of the top neurosurgeons of the Midwest. He's even used the money he's made cracking skulls to purchase some mini-malls. Hearing that Ted is divorced is just horrible news for Blanche. She's just devastated on his behalf, so much so she simply must offer him comfort by tightly squeezing herself betwixt Dorothy and Ted, who had already casually, comfortably been sitting on the couch. Going in for the kill, Blanche starts with a compliment of Ted's shirt before begging to know more about neurosurgery and then making a date for 8 o'clock that night. Before he can say yes, no, or otherwise, Ted has to check in with Stan. Well, he did have tickets for them to be ringside at a mud wrestling event, where apparently Stan was hoping to get Ted a date because, as he sees it, Having plans with Blanche is a bird in the hand, as opposed to the possible wrestler date being the two in the bush. With his brother's permission to skip out on the muddy festivities, Ted and Blanche have an official date. Besides, who needs the wrestling when they're headed to the nude beach to get a good spot? You know, before all the creeps show up. And with that, the Zbornaks are out of there. Calling her friend's behavior out for being so shameless and embarrassing, Dorothy has some thoughts about what Blanche just pulled. I know I would. I mean, what kind of friend would just help themselves to your former brother-in-law without at least getting a rundown of what he was like? Blanche hadn't thought about any of that. She was too busy maneuvering around Ted's advances. The date apparently went well as the pair has returned to the house, even if Blanche is wearing all black except the 4th of July-inspired blotches of color on the chest of her sweater. Try as she might, Ted just isn't interested in what Blanche is trying to put out, and he's ready to go home. Not one to take no for an answer, Blanche pulls Ted into the living room before curling up on his side of the couch. As she gushes about his amazing work as a doctor, he's surprisingly humble, especially for a neurosurgeon, about the importance of his work. Good thing Blanche has a doctor in her presence. She's starting to feel a bit heated and just isn't sure what to do about it. Even when she offers for Ted to find her thermostat for himself, he continues to either ignore the overwhelming horniness or is completely lacking in the social skills department, which might explain his divorce. 
Speaking of lacking social skills, enter Rose, still in her robe, still unable to sleep, still lacking the awareness that there's a date going on in the living room and she's crashing it. This is not a problem for Blanche. She doesn't hesitate to tell her to get lost. Even when her friend is offended by her rude behavior, Blanche continues to try and drag her tired, delusional Rose back to bed. But when she tries to, Ted sees it as an opportunity to escape. But Blanche can't have that. She's just got to have Rose get out of there and go lay down. Maybe counting sheep will help. Sure, that works for some people, but for wool-allergic Rose, using the method believed to have been started by medieval shepherds to count their sheep at the end of the day to make sure they got all of them back after sharing a field, well, it would only upset her allergies. Luckily, Rose figured out that counting something to relax yourself and fall asleep isn't exclusive to sheep. That's why she's shifted to counting the Jackson family members. Joe and Catherine Jackson had 10 children, Rebby, Jackie, Tito, Jermaine, LaToya, Marlon, his twin Brandon, who passed away at birth, Michael, Randy, and Janet. The Confederate General Thomas Stonewall Jackson was not a member of their family. Desperate for any way out, Ted attempts to escape once more. Unwilling to let him go, Blanche's only option is to role-play. Ted will be the desk, and she the paperweight. Coming into the room to find Blanche in Ted's lap, Sophia, in her coral robe, can only deduce that he must have bought dinner. Sophia is making herself at home, in her home, by coming out to watch the best of Johnny Carson, irritating Blanche, who can't understand why she has to watch it right then, right there. Well, because we didn't have DVR yet, Blanche. After some sarcasm and Ted placing Blanche gently on the couch, he finally gets out the door, only to be caught by Dorothy making her return. For Ted, it was hard for him to handle all of the move-making Blanche was doing, since he was used to men doing so. After fake laughing at Dorothy's quip, asking him just how many men he's dated, Ted then asks the same question of her evening. Oh, she had a grand old time. She was blessed with being at parent-teacher conferences, even though she's a substitute. Once again, Dorothy's obsession with the hairstyles of the youth have her sounding a bit square. It wasn't a difficult night because she had to argue with parents about their crappy kids. Sorry, I too am a parent-teacher conference survivor. No, her conversations were all about how little Betty, probably not an accidental name choice, could only be considered to play Mary in the Christmas show if she would trim her mohawk. After Ted's juggling of Blanche and Dorothy demeaning hairstyles, the two have decided that even though it's late, they're up for getting a drink together. So off they go into the night, until it's the next morning, and once again, Rose hasn't slept. After Rose yells unasked-for sleep information at Sophia, she feels no pity. Sheesh, she hasn't slept well in over a decade. Enjoying a cup of milk at the table, Sophia has now become the next lucky recipient of a St. Olaf story. This time, it's Elise Ulderruden, the participant of the rocking chair marathon who stayed awake, thanks to the help of her children cheering and her husband zapping her with his cattle prod for 17 days. And if you can believe it, rocking chair marathons are a real thing. DigitalNC.com tells us that in 1933 in Elkin, North Carolina, there was a rocking chair marathon. Tickets to view the event were sold, creating the first and second place cash prize for the winning rockers. As vaudevillian acts performed to the side, the swingers, all but one being a woman, had to keep their chairs moving for 50 minutes out of an hour for every hour until they couldn't go on. But even after 48 hours, the chairs were still going strong and the event continued and 
I hate to say it, but we need to help Digital NC because they couldn't find out who won and neither could I. But I did find articles promoting contests across the country and even a case of a man becoming irate and hitting another man with a chair during one of the contests. So if you want to get your internet sleuthing on and find out who won the Elkin, North Carolina rocking chair marathon in June of 1933, go for it. And then Gmail us. Even though she was just drinking it, the glass of milk Sophia is sipping on just happens to be a sleeping potion from the old days, and it's guaranteed to work. So while Rose starts drinking the mystery beverage, apparently she's over her whole milk phobia thing, Sophia sneaks around her, grabbing a pot so that she can knock her unconscious with it. Think of it as the Sicilian version of Salmonex, which is an antihistamine that can cause drowsiness. Before Sophia can damage Rose's few remaining brain cells, Blanche interrupts with a look of horror and a shrieking of, Sophia! Her rhetorical question of what she was doing is answered with a lie. Sophia's souffle was so eggy and fluffy, it just floated away. Blanche isn't buying it, but before she can press charges, Stan has entered from the back door, <whistles> sporting a velvet tracksuit from the 80s gods. We're talking yellow polo shirt under a navy pant and sweatshirt with white piping on the chest and red lines on the arm. It's very va-va-va-voom. Which is exactly what this idiot assumes went on betwixt she and Ted, as Ted didn't return home last night. You know, because of the ole ole, cha-cha-cha, tango-tango. For non-Spanish speakers, that means getting nasty, the horizontal polka, checking the sausage at the San Gennaro Festival. When Blanche remains clueless as to what he's referring to, Stan assumes she's just playing dumb, which he's happy to do as it comes so easily for him, so easy he could be the manager if dumb was a ball team. Unable to take a hint, Stan continues to make guesses as to where Ted is lying or washing. He goes so far as to start to head to Blanche's room until she makes it very clear that Ted is not there. They had their date, and he went home around 11.30. So if he isn't home and he isn't with Blanche, that means something awful could have happened to him, and for all they know, he's hurt and needs mouth-to-mouth. Speaking of, Ted's whereabouts are no longer in question when a worried Stan starts to leave. Opening the door, he's interrupted a makeout session between his brother and ex-wife. <whistles> well, I guess not interrupted, as the two either don't hear or don't care that they've been busted, and continue to caress one another's beige bodies until we transition to a commercial break. Finally coming up for air, the Zbornaks are in the living room, facing the repercussions of their actions. Stan is shocked, appalled, and angry. You're that desperate? You're willing to be this pathetic? Well, Dorothy won't stand for being spoken to with such disrespect. Except that he was saying those nasty things to Ted. When Stan demands he leaves right then, Ted stands up for himself for a whopping four seconds before feeling forced to leave by the power of his big brother's boss eyes. Blanche is rightfully upset. After how she was treated most recently with the whole Gill situation, she would have every right once again to be mad at her friend for swooping in on her date scraps, personal history or not. Holding Dorothy accountable, Blanche feels that Dorothy, no matter the history she had with Ted, should have said something before sleeping with Blanche's date. What if she had really liked him? As we've seen, if the shoe was on the other foot, Dorothy and Rose would be quick to judge and dismiss Blanche. 
sure, all of that is true, but for Blanche, this isn't so much about her feelings as it's an opportunity for dramatics. Before Dorothy can get a word out, Blanche whips her robe through the air and with a shaky voice and even shakier head, leaves to the kitchen. She doesn't have to listen to this. Just as Dorothy doesn't have to listen to her mother, who undoubtedly has something to say about Dorothy's decision-making. Defending herself against unmade accusations, Dorothy claims she and Ted spent the night talking. Yeah, and Don Corleone of The Godfather wasn't using his olive oil business for money laundering. Always one to get involved and choose a side, Rose is now being informed of the previous evening's transgressions. Rose can't believe it was Ted Dorothy slept with. Really, it's not possible, because he was on a date with Blanche, so it was someone else. Not interested in explaining everything on a Rose level, the girls ignore her and Dorothy continues to not apologize. Making only excuses for what she did, Dorothy explains she didn't think Ted and Blanche liked each other, and Ted had said they had nothing in common. It really wouldn't have killed her to stop and throw in a, I'm sorry for making a poor decision that hurt your feelings. Not one to take getting her feelings hurt without an exchanging of words, Blanche is fine with the fact that Ted didn't like her. It's not even a surprise given how boring of a person he is and how questionable his taste in women is. Dorothy then accuses Blanche of trying to get her goat, which is an old expression that comes from horse racing, of all things. It was found that goats had a calming effect on the stressed-out racehorses, so they were allowed to hang out in the stalls with them. To get someone's goat is to take away that calm presence and to basically work someone up. Now that's a fun goat fact. <laughs> Once again getting into a tit-for-tat spat, Blanche starts to explain that the only way a man could be more interested in Dorothy than her would be if the man was fresh out of jail. As much as Dorothy is trying to not engage, she just can't help it. And so it begins. Bimbo, tramp, slut, you know, the classics until Dorothy goes past name-calling and goes into burning territory. How is it that I'm the slut when the new Navy, Marine, and Army ad campaigns invite recruits to see the world, serve their country, and sleep with Blanche Devereaux? To break free. To reach new heights. Master new skills. To meet the world. On its terms. And yours. You're reaching deep inside you. Go! The things you've never known. It's been tough, rough going, but you haven't gone alone. My hometown is not like this, but that's all right with me. See, I'm out here for my The names are back, trash, slut, but Rose needs it to stop. Before they know it, they'll cross a line and say something really bad, which I guess we've learned in this friend group, their line is perhaps not as sensitive as most people's. With Blanche storming out, Rose offers to make Dorothy some tea. She's been loving it. It's helping her find some relief from anxiety when she can't sleep, which is when she drinks the tea. The tea that is fully caffeinated. Sheesh, Rose. You might as well throw in a pile of Oreos while you're at it. Well, it turns out Rose has mixed up the benefits of protecting your bones with calcium and the staying awake and jittery effects of caffeine. She should be able to not only blink, but sleep very soon. 
Now that she has the answer for her insomnia, Rose can get back to work. But as Dorothy points out, she's not really in a position to help people. But Rose knows sometimes all someone needs is a person to acknowledge them, smile at them, or just listen. And oh boy, she can always just claim that one of the voices being heard by a patient is hers. Ooh la la, it's an evening. We don't know which, but it's an evening. And we find Ted and Dorothy slow dancing in the middle of the most Miami-looking restaurant of all time. Palm trees, purple, those small windows that are usually in bathrooms. It's tacky and we're loving it. Sharing a song, the pair also share memories, like the time the Zvornak brothers took their dates out dancing and to get shakes. Stan capping the evening off by doing his famous walrus impersonation involving straws being put in his nose. He's of course grown up since then, and he only does that trick with breadsticks. As the two continue to sway and barely touch their palms together, Ted admits that even all those years ago, he had a bit of a crush on Dorothy, a crush that finally came to fruition with their reunion. Coco. I don't mean to brag, but back in my dating days, I would often get crushes. I think I was making up for high school. You know, I had crushes all through high school that never came into anything. And I think as I got older, I was like, not anymore. And I was able to conquer those crushes. Did you experience that in your dating life? Oh, yeah. I mean, you. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. <laughs> you. Yeah, that that was the one. That one worked out pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Were you just like somebody you just set your target on? You're like, someday. Uh, it was a girl that was in my, went to the same Catholic school that I went to, grade school, K through eight. And I ran into her when I was out with some friends one time when I was visiting LA. But I, I told her that I had a, I had had a crush on her. And that really worked. Really? Oh, yep. That's all. I, I literally, that was like, that was all I said. I think that would work for most people. It was great. Nobody says it. And you were able to make that crush dream come true. Yeah. That's great. When I started dating a guy who I had had a crush on in middle school and we met way later in life, I, I acted at the wedding that we reconnected at. I acted like Blanche. I full on sat between people. <laughs> We were like at a campfire and I was like, excuse me, <laughs> so that I could sit next to him. And I'd be like, this is my spot. Excuse me. <laughs> so I appreciate her tenacity in that way. I was just going to say you are a tenacious person. Exactly. <laughs> that, was, that was going to come out of my mouth right now. So congrats. I get what I want. I appreciate that about you. Yeah, because now I got you. That's right. Reminding Dorothy that even with the lovely neurosurgeon Ted, she'll still be connected to Stan, he shows up and taps them on the shoulder to interrupt their dance. While Ted looks nice in his traditional navy suit and Dorothy is in a red ensemble, Stan is keeping it Stan by wearing a beige and even beiger 70s styled wide lapeled suit. Leaving the former husband and wife on the dance floor, Ted excuses himself to the table while Stan attempts to dance with Dorothy. As much as he's moving and grooving, she's just not interested, much like their wedding night. Upset that her date has been ruined by Stan's appearance, he's actually there for a good reason. He happened upon some information that he feels Dorothy should have. Ted has booked tickets to Acapulco. 
no, this isn't groundbreaking information about if he has a travel agent or not, it's much more serious. The only other time Ted has gone there was when he got married. Dorothy isn't seeing any correlation. It's no different than how the last time she went to Coney Island, she got pregnant. For Stan, the tickets, the fancy aftershave, and Ted making reservations at the hotel, the same hotel he stayed at the first time he got married, he's certain of one thing. No, not that Ted is lacking creativity and really should branch out as marriage and engagement shouldn't be some sort of process you repeat in the same place but with different people. No, for Stan, this means that Ted is going to propose to Dorothy. Dorothy doesn't want to hear it and she storms off to the table, a table that conveniently has room for three. Stan follows and they all sit, Stan calling Ted out on his romantic plans. When Dorothy asks if it's true, she doesn't clarify what the it is. You know, like, so it's true you want to propose to me or it's true you want to take me with you? Stan, unable to say, hey, I still have feelings for my ex-wife in a way that could make me uncomfortable with you, my brother, dating her. He just says it's a bad idea and warns Ted of Dorothy's snoring capabilities. None of that matters to Ted. Dorothy is lovely. And Stan agrees. But lovely just isn't good enough when you're a rich doctor man and have the choice of actual hot young women. Unlike his brother, Ted actually stands up for Dorothy, telling him he's out of line. Fine, Stan will just lay it out. Ted only wants to marry Dorothy because he has always looked up to Stan and he has always wanted everything he's wanted. Sure, Ted loves his brother, but marry Dorothy? What? As Stan rattles off the plans Ted has made, Ted agrees. Yeah, I did plan all of that. With the flight attendant I met on my way to Miami, she agreed to go on a vacation with me. That is, if I can find a kind, helpful, perhaps grandmotherly figure to watch her kids. And with that, Ted's full Zibornakian instincts kick in and he slumps his neck down before turning to Dorothy to ask her to babysit. The emotional whiplash of the possibility of getting engaged to being used as a sex toy and then a babysitter have Dorothy reeling. Yeah, she's great with kids, but I don't think she wants to watch your girlfriend's tyrants, especially the one with arsonistic tendencies. Hearing that his brother has followed in his disgusting footsteps, Stan can't help but celebrate Ted's landing of a flight attendant. Finally getting her footing, Dorothy just has to ask why Ted was saying all of those things about having had a crush on her and all the good times. Well, yeah, had. Okay, well, what about the fact that they slept together? For Ted, that will always be a special night for him. And it was special for Dorothy, too. Not only were they physically intimate, but emotionally as well. Ted even sharing a deep secret of his with her. A secret that she will respect and keep between the two of them. Ted appreciates her discretion, and she elegantly, politely leaves the table and leaves Ted with a small kiss blown in his direction. Calmly making her way to the maitre d's podium, manned by actor Brad Trumbull, who was a World War II veteran and theater actor, performing on stage in Lizzie and the Rainmaker and on television in Gunsmoke, Andy Griffith, That Girl, MASH, The Waltons, Mary Tyler Moore, Carol Burnett Show, Different Strokes, and Mama's Family, Golden Girls was his last job, but this won't be the last time we see him on set as a maitre d'. Helping herself to the microphone that's usually reserved for calling out table availability, Dorothy gracefully commands the room's attention before pointing out Ted and announcing his little secret, which is the same as his brother's when blood pressure medication is involved. 
He is unable to get an erection. Enjoy your meal. Now, I'm not one to laugh at or mock a medical condition, but when guys are jerks about it or plan trips with other women to Acapulco, well, sometimes you just have to hit a guy below the belt, you know? As the brothers are left with the embarrassment, we go back to the house, finding Rose finally asleep in her bed. The girl was so tired she even left all of her lights on. Not worried about disturbing her friend who so desperately needs rest, Blanche, in a white full-body-sized house dress robe thing with black polka dots and sporadic roses, goes into her room. Upset about the ordeal with Dorothy, Blanche is desperate to speak to someone, anyone, about it. Instead of seeking advice from Sophia, Blanche violently awakens poor Rose, who begs to be left alone. But Blanche can't be bothered. She just needs to know that, even though she said horrible things to her friend, she's still a good person. A question Rose can't really assist with, as she's not quite sure who's talking to her. Once Blanche reminds her it's her, Rose answers her question. You aren't terrible. You're just horny all the time. Also uncaring about how serious Rose's lack of sleep has been, Dorothy is now knocking at the door, also needing to come in and talk. Not ready to engage with her, Blanche runs and hides behind the curtains. Also waking Rose, Dorothy realizes she was terrible to Blanche, nearly as terrible as Ted had been to her. Coming out from behind the curtains as though she was Polonius in Hamlet, Blanche appears and apologies are made. As sorry as Dorothy was, Blanche needs to be sure she fully understands why she was extra upset in this situation. She isn't like Dorothy. She doesn't have to deal with rejection from men all the time. So when she tried everything and still couldn't get Ted to like and or sleep with her, well, it made her all the more sensitive to Dorothy's being chosen. She can't help it. She has a fragile ego. Now everyone is friends again and they can let Rose get her sleep. Sleep that is pissing off the now-present Sophia who spent all day putting together a real Sicilian sleeping potion, one that saved her uncle by knocking him out during a World War II invasion. To prove its potency, Sophia has Dorothy take a sip. She does, and when she hands it off to Blanche, she promptly collapses on the bed. Delighted by her concoction's strength, Sophia runs off to write the recipe down. Maybe this one will be her get-rich-quick scheme that actually works. After Sophia leaves, Dorothy sits up, laughing at how easy it is to make her mother happy. With that, she and Blanche hug. She tells Rose goodnight. And then she passes out on the floor face first. I guess that drink really did work. So what is the lesson in today's story? Read the ingredients of things you drink before bed? Don't steal your friend's date? Don't listen to your scuzzy ex-husband when he thinks his brother is going to propose to you? I guess all of the above. This really was just a fun little episode with the exception of the fight between the girls, and it really has us all asking the same question Blanche had at the start. Why is it men have to put on a show to get what they want from women? As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we get a visit from Little Spin. Fruit, wax, facts. <laughs> That's right. Is my addition. It's what the people come for. Oh, come here for. <laughs> come for fruit. You here for a fruit wax? Instead for the conversation. <laughs> it's a good system.
month. Right. Look at us. We're thriving. <laughs> Never been better. Is it tax day? Yes. I mean, just means I'm another year later on my other ones. <laughs> Don't send us a padded toilet seat. We won't like it. That material seems sponge-like and absorbent. Yeah. And I'm scared of the the implications of that thought I just had. And the air poofs out, meaning it is not a closed seal, meaning when you're flushing, stuff is going up in there. Uh, wait, who's is Randy Jackson, Randy Jackson, or a different Randy Jackson? Randy Jackson, Randy Jackson. Randy Jackson. The one from American Idol? No. Okay. Whoa, that would have been mind-blowing. He's a music producer, and that is, uh, no, he's a different Jackson. Whoa. Whoa. That's a no for him, dog. Souffle, souffle, souffle. Sophia's? <laughs> I'm scared of it now. Took a long time. Yeah. But now we're doing it. <laughs> What did we both scream about when it came on the TV this morning? <laughs> Moonrise Kingdom. <laughs> oh my God. That was that was great. Both just started screaming in bed. Oh my God. No. <laughs> Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.